So, Genesis chapter 10. This is the word of the Lord. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer and Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erek, Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Enamim, Lehabim, Neftuhim, Pathrusim, Kalsuhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimmerites and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clan of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth. Children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimiel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nation. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We love your word. God, help us to remember that even though Genesis 10 is difficult and awkward 
and can seem irrelevant to us here today, that it is your holy and inspired word that is like buried treasure. We thank you for your spirit that leads us into all truth. So we ask that you would please lead us from this difficult chapter to your gospel. Open our eyes and illuminate this text that we may see Christ. We ask these things for his sake. Amen. If any of you thought Ephraim and Gideon and Noah were weird names, you didn't have a clue, did you? <laughs> so we, our next son's name is in one of those. Well, we won't tell you today, but we'll just save it. Well. Now, Genesis 10 is commonly called the Table of Nations. <coughs> Because it's an outline of the notable and the prominent descendants from which the nations and the kingdoms came. It's a history of the peoples of the world who literally all came from eight people that God saved in the ark. Eight people God saved in the ark, and from those eight people came the nations. This is the table of nations. It's a partial genealogy of the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons. It's not exhaustive. Um, it doesn't list every single descendant that they had. In fact, this list includes people groups and regions, not just even people, but regions of peoples and individuals. So when Moses says, these are the generations, it was a way to say something like, this is what came next. This is what came of. We see the same phrase used in Genesis 2, verse 4, when Moses writes, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. It was a way to introduce the account of how something unfolded. So, verse 5 says, each in his own language. And what this tells us is that this, what is being described here is actually after the Tower of Babel that we'll look at next week, that, uh, that, that pastor is going to be bringing to us next week, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. That, this is actually happening after the Tower of Babel. But Moses wrote Genesis, um, and he meant for us to read chapter 10 right after chapter 9. He didn't mean for us to read it after the Tower of Babel. And I believe that it, it is a continuation in some ways of the blessing and the cursing from Genesis 9, the blessing and the cursing that Noah pronounced. I believe Genesis 10 is kind of a continuation of that. And Moses is expounding on that blessing and that curse. And he's demonstrating historically and culturally and politically and socially how that blessing and that curse unfolded in the history of the world. How it unfolded in the descendants that were blessed and cursed. Um, I think it's, it's worth pointing out that the list inter is introduced to us by naming Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then um, the listing of the descendants begins with Japheth, goes to Ham, and it ends with Shem. I think it's interesting because we know that Ham was the youngest son, and we know that Shem was the oldest son, but Moses begins with Japheth, the middle son, and I think um, one commentator speculates that the reason he did that was because he was the least known, that he traveled the farthest away, so he's the least known. And he says he went to Ham next because they were better known, but most importantly, I think this is really what is significant. Moses ends with Shem, the oldest son, 
because Shem's line was the blessed line. And so Moses ends with that to show us how the history of the church is one continuous narrative, like we talked about last week. This is one continuous narrative. I think that makes sense because not only, um, because from Shem's line came not only uh, people like Abraham and the church, from Shem's line came Christ. and From Shem's line came our Messiah. So in verses 2 through 5, we're given the nations and the peoples descended from Japheth, including the Medes, the Greeks, Scythians, and coastland peoples. There are others, but these are the ones you might have heard of in reading your Bible and you may encounter as you read your Bible. In verses 6 through 20, we have the nations and the peoples descended from Ham, including the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, Sodom, Gomorrah, the Egyptians, Babylonians, Canaanites, Assyrians, and the Philistines. Now, (coughs) if you are at all familiar with the Old Testament, if you've read through the Old Testament at all, you probably recognize at least some of those names. Those are, um, these are the most prominent enemies of God and of his people. These are some of the, the main characters in the story in terms of enemies. In, ver- in verse uh, 8 through 12, it talks about one man in particular. I'm going to read those verses. Cush father Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. And he goes on. <coughs> Excuse me. This is the first place that our Bibles use the word kingdom. Kingdom. And at first glance, besides a name like Nimrod, you might think this is a guy that we would want to emulate. This is, you know, us men here, a mighty hunter before the Lord. I want to be a mighty hunter, a mighty man, except his name is Nimrod. And that's a problem more than just because Nimrod means, you know, dumb to us. You know, you're a Nimrod. That's like, you dummy. But Nimrod actually means rebellion. Nimrod was not a good guy. And, um... When, it, when Moses uses this phrase, before the Lord, it's not talking about worshipful reverence before the Lord or a, a sacrificial or worshipful attitude. It's actually talking about Nimrod's self-exaltation above the order of men. Nimrod exalted himself above the order of men. He established what is known as the first kingdom. And, um, and that's what is meant by before the Lord, his self-exaltation above the order of men. And so we're, we're left to infer from this passage that Nimrod actually was, when it says he was a hunter, he was actually a domineering hunter of men. He was a hunter of man. He was a brutal and a proud tyrant. And we see this from where his, uh, from the kingdoms that he established. He began his kingdom at Babel. This is where Babylon and Assyria both came from. And w- as we see next week, Babel was the, is the perfect picture of pride and self-exaltation and uh, everything that is bad with man. So um, he, he builds a kingdom and he begins that quest by trying to build his way to heaven, by trying to build his way to God. 
So we see in this passage the birthing of man's pursuits of dominion and self-exaltation. And then in Genesis 10, verses 21 through 31, we're given the descendants of Shem. From Shem came the Semitic people. Hebrews came from Shem. We have Abraham and the Hebrews, and ultimately Jesus came from Shem. So it's important to note when we talk about things like this, when we talk about the nations, <coughs> excuse me, and peoples and descendants, that God is not a racist. God is not a racist. God is not um, a respecter of persons. He didn't look and say, well, those guys are way better than those other guys. I'm choosing them and not them. He's not a racist. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There were undoubtedly God, godly um, and faithful people who were not descendants of Shem. Who were not descendants of Shem. And there were no doubt uh, wicked people who were descendants of Shem. There were no doubt godly faithful people who were not descendants of Shem. And there were no doubt descendants of Shem who were not godly. But in, at that time, those were the exception and not the rule. At the time, the descendants of Shem generally were the godly ones, and the descendants of Ham were generally the wicked ones. So um, stereotypes and cliches like this, this, generalizations, and we hate them in our modern culture. We hate them. But really, no matter how much we hate them, stereotypes are stereotypes, and cliches are cliches because they are true. Now, that's a stereotype in and of itself. That's a generalization in and of itself. But the Bible is full of generalizations that are true, but that are true in a general sense and not in an absolute sense. I'll give you an example. Paul says, It is true that all Cretans are liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. That is a stereotype. That is a stereotype. He says, it's true that those guys, Cretans, are all like that. <coughs> and Paul, he exhorts a young pastor, Titus, who has Cretans in his church, to rebuke the Cretans in his church sharply for this, that they may be sound in the faith. And in other words, Paul is saying to Titus, rebuke your Cretans in your church so the stereotype will not be true of them. Stereotypes are true. Generally, rebuke them so it's not true of them. That is a difficult thing, really, for us to grasp because we just don't like generalizations. We don't like stereotypes, and we don't like cliches. But this is kind of what Genesis 10 is dealing with. It's dealing with general nations and peoples, and God is speaking about them generally. We'll get into that in a minute. When we say that these nations and peoples were enemies of God and of his people, that's a generalization. It doesn't mean that every single individual was mean or bad or wicked. It, it's a generalization. And so it doesn't in, inherently exclude certain peoples or races from salvation, but rather it identifies them and it identifies the salvation and the grace that they desperately need, which is the same salvation and the same grace that we so desperately need. So the Bible is crystal clear. Apart from Christ, we are all enemies. We are all enemies. You, who your parents are or who your grandparents are, 
ultimately has nothing to do with salvation. Ultimately has nothing to do with it. Being born into a godly home or a God-fearing family or godly lineage was not good enough then and it is not good enough now. Jesus says you must be born again. You must be born again. So today, if you have not trusted in Christ and in his saving work on the cross, if Christ is not your treasure, then repent and believe. Then repent and believe. And the good news to you is that if you will have him, he will be yours. He will take you from being an enemy to becoming a child. That's the gospel to you this morning. This is, this is one of the texts that is easy to skip over in our Bible reading, isn't it? I'll skip it. Just a bunch of names I can't pronounce. It, it's an example of one of, the mo- one of the more difficult passages to see the gospel and to apply it personally to our lives. And this morning, we want to try and work through that difficulty. And I want us to see two things in our text and through our text. And the two things are this. Number one, God rules the world. Number one, God rules the world. He is sovereign. God rules the world. And number two, God makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That's a long point, I know, but I'm using the words of joy to the world. I'm using the the words from joy to the world. Number one, point number one, God rules the world. He is sovereign. And point number two, he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the, and the wonders of his love. Listen to the words of this hymn. We sang it this morning, but listen to these words. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. This list of names that we awkwardly stumble over is ultimately pointing us to the gospel. It is ultimately proving the promise is true. It's proving the promise that God gave to Noah and to the world. That this text is meant to get us ready. It's meant, this hot, humid day in July, this text is meant to get us ready for Christmas, for Easter. It's meant to get the world ready for her Messiah. It's, it's pointing to Christ. So number one, God rules the world. He is sovereign. Remember where we are in in this story. Noah comes off the ark. He becomes a man of the soil. He plants a vineyard. He makes wine. He becomes drunk and he passes out in his tent. He's uncovered and he's hated by his youngest son, Ham, who gleefully scorns him and tells his two brothers who instead of joining in Ham's wickedness, they show mercy and grace to their father. They cover their father. This results in Noah pronouncing a blessing on Shem and a curse on Ham, a blessing on Shem and Japheth, and a curse on, well, really, he cursed Canaan. But really, what we see is the blessing on Shem was a blessing to Shem's descendants, and the, and the curse that came to Canaan, Ham's son, was a curse to his 
descendants, Canaan's descendants. But really, it's, it was like God was not saying, Ham, you're getting off here. I'll just skip you and go curse your son. God was si- cursed Hanan, he, Canaan. He pronounced the curse on Canaan because it was like God was saying, it's not good enough to just say, curse you, Ham. He's gonna curse by name your son and show that the longevity of your sin is going to reach through generations. And, and it's no different than Adam's sin. Adam's sin was a sin that had longevity. It reached through generation after generation. Ham's sin, how, whatever we want to think of it, reached through generations. And that's why God said, curse you Can- Canaan. It was cursed to his offspring, but also to his father, implicitly. Chapter 10 follows in the vein of blessing and curse. And it begins with Moses saying, and this is what came of those curses and blessings. This is what came of those cursed and blessed descendants. Genesis 10 reminds us that whoever we are, whoever we are, whatever we do, everything has a role in God's story. Whoever we are and whatever we do, we all have a role in God's story. God rules the world. He is sovereign. And that means nothing, nothing is meaningless. Every sinful thing we do, along with every faithful thing we do, it all has an intricate part to play in the story. It all has a vital part to play in God's story. Everything fits. Everything we do has, a, has a, the perfect place leading up to the Messiah, leading up to the redemption of the world. So God is sovereign. He was not looking away when Noah got drunk. He was not busy. He, he didn't blink. He didn't miss something. When Ham sinned against his father, God was not caught off guard. God was ruling. God was working in the sinfulness and in the shame and in the scorn to produce glory. God was working in the sinfulness and the shame and the scorn to produce glory. Now think about this. (coughs) God did not have to create the process of of fermentation. God created the world. He created grapes and he didn't have to create fermentation. He didn't have to make sugar to break down into alcohol. And he did. I'm glad he did. But he did. He didn't have to. God did not have to create our bodies to react to excessive amounts of alcohol the way they do. But they do. In addition, God, knowing the future, could have just kept Ham off the ark. Knowing what Ham was going to do, knowing what Ham's descendants were going to do, God could have just said, "Mm, you just stay over here today. We're going to go. But he didn't. He saved Ham. He preserved Ham. God could have told Ham's heart to stop beating, his lungs to stop inflating, and in a moment, Ham would have dropped dead. God sustained Ham while Ham breathed his vicious hatred of his father 
to his brothers. God sustained his heart. God sustained him. God sustained him and gave him children knowing that those children were going to result in the murder and, and tyranny of God's people. The enslavement of God's people. He gave him children. God was ruling the world then and he's ruling the world now. God is the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, Acts 4, 24. He is the sovereign king of kings and Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6, 15. God rules the world. He is sovereign over all things. Now, that is not always an easy thing for us to accept or to think about or, well, what does that imply? What does that mean? What are you trying to say, Caleb? What about all the bad stuff? Let's, let's think about it, and let's go to the word. In Amos 3.9, it says this. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Job 2.10, shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. There's the explanation for him. Job 36, 22 and 23 says, Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say you have done wrong? And unless we think that God is just concerned with the big stuff, that he doesn't care or he's not involved in the, what we would think of as the minutia of life, the trivial details, the coincidences, Listen to this, Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You know what that means. You hear that. You roll a dice while you're playing Monopoly. Guess who decided how that dice would land? God, I don't understand that. I don't know why God would rule the world that way. But this is what Proverbs says. The lot is cast into the lap, and its every decision is from the Lord. Matthew 10, 29 through 30, Jesus says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. What is he saying? He's saying not even a bird can fall out of a tree and get eaten by a cat. Not one hair of your head is unaccounted for to God. You think we don't... Do we think God doesn't care about the minutiae, the trivial details? He cares. He knows how many hairs are represented in this room today. He knows the bird that just got eaten by our cat at the house, Pete. He knows. That didn't happen apart from his will. God rules the world. God rules sparrows. God numbers hairs. And God rules kings. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it where, whenever he will. The king's heart. You want to rail against Obama this morning, fine. But know this. God raised him up. God put him there. And Obama's heart, just like every other ruler and authority in Israel, in the separatist Ukraine, 
in Malaysia, in Russia, their heart is in the hand of our sovereign Lord and he turns it wherever he wills. God sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Job 41, 34. God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. Daniel 2, 21. Psalm 22, 28 says this. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. He rules over the nations. God rules the world. He is sovereign. He is sovereign over sin. He is sovereign over sparrows. He is sovereign over kings. He is sovereign over nations. God is sovereign over our stories. God is sovereign over the story of your life. He is sovereign. He is ruling. And this is a difficult idea for us. This is a difficult thing for us to here because uh, sometimes we either just flat out reject this idea and say I am the master of my own destiny or we say the other there's a ditch on both sides of the road that's one ditch I am the master of my own destiny I choose my own fate I make my own way that's not that's not right and the ditch on the other side is case sera sera whatever will be will be fatalism it's just I don't have to do anything because it's all predetermined And it is predetermined. But God is not a fatalistic puppet master. God is an author of a story. An author of a story that you have a role in. That you have a part to play. This idea that we have no say in the matter of what gifts God gives us is for some people frightening. That that whether... We, that we have no say in the matter of the gift of salvation that God gives that he will grant or he will not grant. And what I mean is there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. There's nothing we can do to make God say, oh, you know, I see that guy over there. He, I think I'll give it to him. He deserves it. There's no amount of money we can use to approach God and say, here, God, let me just pay for it myself. There's nothing we can do. It is a gift of God, and that means we are utterly dependent on his mercy and on his grace. That, for some people, is uncomfortable or scary, but it's true, and it should comfort you. He rules the world, and he chooses whom he chooses. He saves whom he wills. He shows mercy on whom he shows mercy, and he has compassion on whom he will have compassion. That's straight out of Romans 9, Chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 15. We don't, we don't get to object. We don't get to object and say, that's not fair, God. No, no, no. That's not right. We don't get to object and accuse God for blessing Shem and cursing Ham. We don't get to look at God and say, that's unfair. God rules the world. God is God. We are not. Now, if that bothers you, what that tells you, what that should tell you, is that your, pr- your heart is too full of pride. If the, the idea bothers you that you are not God, you're like Nimrod, exalting yourself to a place where you don't want to be. You don't want to be there this morning. This brings us to the second point. God 
the first point, God rules the world, he is sovereign. Number two, God makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. God makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Now, there's nothing outside of God's vision, nothing. God created the world to glorify himself. God created the world to glorify himself. He did not create the world for our sake. God created the world to glorify himself, and he glorifies himself in mysterious ways. One of the ways God glorifies himself is in working to redeem the nations. He glorifies himself as he works to redeem the nations. And and this is the one of the reasons, maybe even one of the main reasons, why... If you are a Christian, you're still here. If you're a Christian, if you're going to heaven, why didn't God just take you to heaven? You're still here. And this may be the main reason, probably is the main reason in, in the way I see it, of why you are still here. God says you can be a part of the redemption of the nations, the redemption of the world. In Nahum 1, Nahum is a book, a minor prophet, Nahum 1, we're given a picture of what God is like. And the prophet says in verse 3, he says this, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. That's good. We like that. We like that nature of God. And we, we all would, you know, that would probably come to the, close to the top of our list. When, we, when I said, think about what God is like. He is good. He is slow to anger. He's great in power. He goes on, he says, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. In verse 7, the prophet says, the Lord is good. We say that a lot. We, we recognize that nature, that character, characteristic of God a lot. These are all attributes of God inherent facets of his nature, of what he is like. But in verse 2, we're given another. Nahum gives us another picture, a facet of what God is like. And he says this, the Lord is is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, think, that's in, that's in verse 2. Then in verse 3, he says, the Lord is good. That's not a contradiction. We have to be careful that that doesn't become a contradiction in our minds. The Lord is jealous. He is avenging. He is the God of vengeance. He is wrathful. He stores up wrath for his enemies. God is like that. In fact, just this morning while we were listening to um, our study of Revelation 6 and 7, which you should read that sometime, you'll get a good, good glimpse of this. Revelation 6, 7, there's this phrase, and it caught me off guard this morning because I... I I, it's like it, I had never heard it before. This phrase in Revelation 6, the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. We think of the wrath of the lion, okay? Yeah, God's wrath, the wrath of the lamb. But, but in Revelation 6, John says they are afraid of the wrath of the Lamb. <laughs> the wrath of the Lamb. Remember how we got here. Ham sins against his father and is cursed. And the curse results in a line of wicked descendants. Enemies. Enemies. 
And why enemies? This isn't just talking about the devil. This is enemies. This is people who dwell on the earth. Why enemies? Why the devil? Why hell? Why can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just go to heaven? What's the point of God cursing him? Why didn't God, why didn't God just brush it aside, let it go? And the answer to, to these questions are tied up with who God is and what he is like. An inherent part of God is his wrath and his vengeance. An inherent part of who he is is that way. And therefore, it is an inherent part of his creation to manifest that. God is jealous and avenging, and for that attribute, for that characteristic to be manifested, there must be an enemy. There must be an object of wrath. There must be an enemy to defeat in order for God to be the avenging redeemer, there, there had to not only be an enemy, there had to be a love to protect. A love to protect. A prize to win. A love to redeem. This is a further manifestation of the enmity that was pronounced in the garden between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Remember God said, the seed of the woman will crush your head, Satan. You will bruise his heel. There will be enmity there, but he will crush your head. This is, um, it goes even further back than that actually to the beginning in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, but before that foundation was laid, Revelation says that Jesus Christ was the lamb who was slain. Before the foundations of the heavens and the earth, before the fall and before the en enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent was even pronounced, Christ was named the lamb who was slain. Something, um, something that I heard that I teach my children is what the whole Bible is about. What's the whole Bible about? In a summary answer, what the whole Bible, what's the whole story about? The whole story of the Bible is about how God sent his son to kill the dragon and get the girl. That's the story of the Bible in a nutshell. God who sent his son to kill the dragon and to get the girl. It's tricky teaching Ephraim and Noah that they are the girl, represented by the girl. That's tricky. Well, what about us? Well, we're there. <laughs> the dragon is Satan. The girl is God's people, the church. God, the whole story of the Bible is about this. God, who sent his son about Christmas, God sends his son to kill the dragon about Easter, and to get the girl about the end of all things, the consummation of all things. This is what we talked about last week, the meta-narrative, the overarching storyline that's developing from Genesis and Revelation, but it doesn't stop there. It goes on, and it's going on today. In our hearts, in your workplaces, in the world today, 
The story continues. The storyline is developing here in Genesis 10, and the storyline, you read it developing when you open your newspaper. You read it developing when you, when you pull up the, the news articles about the devastation that's happening in the world today, about the good that's happening in the world today. You read the story when you're, reading, when you're scrolling through your Facebook news feed. You're reading the story of God's redemption. Can you see it? That's the question. You may be blind to it, but can you see it? Do you have eyes to see it? God is working to redeem the nations, and that implies enemies and a threatened love. Enemies and a threatened love. In Genesis 12, we have the story of uh, the account of God calling Abraham, who, who was a descendant of Shem. And he says, go to the land that I show you. Go to the land that I show you. And Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham to give his offspring the land, and this is what, it, this is what he says, the land of the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, etc. What? Where have we just heard those names. When we're reading through Genesis and we get to those names in Genesis 15, where did we hear those? Genesis 10. Genesis 10, these are the descendants of Ham. In Exodus, God tells Moses and he tells the Israelites multiple times that he will give them the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God says, I will send an angel to drive out these nations from before you. In, in Exodus 33, 2, he says that. In Exodus 34, 11, God actually says, I will drive them out from before you. God was reminding his people of his promise to enlarge the house of Shem and to cut down the house of Ham. He was reminding his people of his promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6. Why don't you just go ahead and if you have your Bibles, go there with me. Deuteronomy 7. <coughs> We're going to read verses 1 through 6. It's another picture of this same thing that God is reminding Moses and the Israelites. In Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6 says this. This is the word of the Lord. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction." You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you 
to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. These nations were wicked, idolatrous, pagan peoples. They were threatening enemies of God's people and of God's purpose. They they were not victims, they were rebels. They were not victims, they were devout rebels toward the God who created them and sustained them. If God was keeping Ham's heart beating and lungs inflating, he most certainly was keeping theirs as well. And that's difficult. I want us to be careful because our, our modern way of thinking, uh, with our modern way of thinking, it's very easy to victimize these people. It's easy to victimize these people and, and in passages like these, and there are many more, many more, it's easy for us to see God as cruel or unjust and to victimize these wicked people. And this would, this would be a damning position to take, to indict God. That, would, that, would, that is not a good idea. Romans chapter 1 if you went to Deuteronomy, if you got your Bibles and you want to turn to Romans chapter 1, we're going to read 18 through 25. And this is, this is why that's not okay to believe, that God is cruel or unjust or that these people should be victimized. This is why God says, showing them no mercy and to destroy them completely. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For all they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things." God commanded the Israelites to show these nations no mercy, to, to devote them to complete destruction. And this does not only exalt God's righteousness and his justice, okay? This does not just exalt God for being holy and just and righteous. They're no mercy to them devoted to complete destruction. That does exalt God's righteousness and holiness and justice, but it doesn't only exalt that. It also exalts his mercy and his love. Why? How? Because we all deserved destruction. Because we all deserved the wrath. When God said to them, show them no mercy and devote them to complete destruction, God was not being cranky. When he did not devote us to complete destruction, we are seen, 
we, we can see the mercy of God. How are we going to see that unless we see the wrath of God poured out? Enemies are necessary. God's righteousness and his justice are exalted in the destruction of the enemies because they deserved annihilation. They deserved death. They did not deserve mercy. But it magnifies his love and his mercy because we deserved annihilation too and we didn't get it. This is God making the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. God was casting, think of it this way, God was casting history. God was casting the story. God was casting history. And this may seem simplistic or reductionistic to say that. God was casting history to reduce real people down to expendable extras. If you ever watch, you know, like, Transformers. I haven't seen the new one, but you know, you watch a, a movie like Transformers, what happens? You inevitably have a fight scene in this big city, and what happens? The camera focuses on who? The guy's fighting, right? And then what do you have going on in the background? Chaos. You have hundreds of extras that are running around. You don't see their face. You don't hear their stories. You just see them in the background. Buildings falling on them. Big monsters, just knocking whole handfuls of them out. And it may seem simplistic or reductionistic to look at these stories and say, so you're saying these are just expendable extras in a story to show us something else? And the answer that we have to, the answer to that has to be Who are we to answer back to God? Who are we to answer back to God? Romans 9, 19 through 20 says this. Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Why have you made me like this? Will the the pot on on the potter's wheel answer back to the potter? I don't want to be a toilet. I don't want to be a spittoon. No. We don't get to answer back to God because God is God and we are not. God is not writing history for our sake. He's not. (coughs) He's not writing history to glorify you and me and Christ Fellowship Church. He's not. He's writing history. He created the world for his sake. He created the world to display his glory, his attributes, his character and nature. He created the world to put himself on display and make his worth known. And this includes every aspect of his character and his nature. This includes his jealousy and his wrath and his vengeance and his love and his mercy and his grace. These in fact, oftentimes are being displayed in the very same event, at the very same moment. The perfect place to see this is at the cross. At the cross. 
in, at the cross where the collision of wrath and love meet. The wrath of God poured to, onto Christ. Christ becoming sin for us. The curse, the Bible says, curses every man who hangs on a tree. Jesus becoming the, cur- the curse. Why? To, be, to become our cure. The wrath of God in the cross, why? So the love of God could be given to us at the cross. What do we see at the cross? The wrath of God or the love of God? Yes, we see the wrath of God and yes, we see the love of God. Do we see God's holiness and righteous and justice? Yes, but we see his mercy and his patience and his grace. In one collision, in one event, in one moment in time, The Son of God made sin becoming our curse and that curse becoming our cure, that curse becoming our blessing and our joy. God is redeeming the nations. The prophet Haggai, another minor prophet toward the end of the Old Testament, speaking of Christ, says this, and I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. He's talking about Jesus. He will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. He goes, he goes on later in the chapter to say, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the throne and the kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. I will destroy them. When God, I was preparing this and um, I was talking about some aspects of it with EJ. And as I got to this part, it, this, this passage in Haggai ends with, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them and the horses and their riders shall come down everyone by the sword of his brother. And I was, it hit me when I read that it made me think of when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. When God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden because of their sin, because of their fall. Why did he do it? He kicked them out of the garden to keep them away from the tree of life. Because he said, if you eat of the tree now, you will be forever damned. You will be forever, perpetually in this state of sin. So he kicked them out of the garden to keep them from the tree of life. And do you remember what he put at the entrance of the garden to guard it. He put a cherubim and he put a flaming spinning sword. He put a flaming spinning sword. Now, that may be no, absolutely no correlation there whatsoever, but it made me think of that for some reason. After the cross and after the resurrection, before Jesus ascends to the Father, he tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I'm gonna come back to the tree thing, the tree uh, of life in a minute. He says, uh, make disciples of all nations. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And God, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, intends for the nations 
to worship him. We're, we're told in numerous places that God will save people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people group. This is why we can know that Ham cursed, it was a general curse, and God wasn't saying literally every individual from who descended from Ham is going to be cursed or excluded from salvation. No, God intends to save people from every nation, every language, every tribe. God is worthy of all praise and therefore he intends to receive all praise from all the nations and all the peoples. And one of the ways he demonstrates his worth to the world, one of the ways he demonstrates his worth to the world is by raising up leaders and cutting them down. We see this in Romans 9, 17. Paul says about Pharaoh, this is why God raised up Pharaoh. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. The table of nations in Genesis 10 points us to the desire of nations who is Christ Jesus. It points us to that tree of life that we were excluded from in the garden. It's pointing us to the gospel, to Jesus. It's pointing us, uh, it's pointing us back to God. And this gospel either condemns us or it redeems us. The good news is not good news to everybody. The good news is only good news to those whom, uh, to those who are redeemed by it, to those who accept it. The gospel either condemns men or it redeems men. The, God's word is a sharp sword that cuts down to the soul and it cuts down to our heart, to our soul, to either damn us or to save us. It either exposes our wickedness or it exposes our faith in him. To disciple the nations is not to suggest to the nations, it's not to campaign to the nations. It's, it's a commission for us to discipline. Have you ever noticed those words are so much alike? Because they're, they're speaking of the same thing. It's a commission to disciple, discipline the nations. To command the unbeliever to believe, to speak to dry bones, to rise up and walk. That's what the commission is about. We're not going to suggest, we're not going to um, protest. We're going to command dry bones to arise. And we command those dry bones to arise in the authority that has been given to Christ in all of heaven and in all of the earth and in the name of Jesus. We speak to dry bones and what do we see? From every nation and tribe and tongue and language, we see dead men arise. We see dry bones come to life. We are Dry bones, we are no different than the descendants of Ham in that we are totally depraved. We are dry bones as well. We are incapable of saving ourselves. The difference is not that Israel was better. This is why God's not a racist. The difference is not that we are better because God chose us. The difference is we are better off 
because Christ has chosen us, because Christ has redeemed us by his blood and made us alive in him. This is not of ourselves, lest we should boast. This is a gift of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah and Revelation. Salvation is of the Lord. This is a gift. The gospel is a call to come and die. It's a call to come to the tree of life and to be cut down by the sword. It's a call to come and be wounded, to take up our cross, to be planted in the ground, to lose our life. Why? To find true life. It's a call back to the tree to be cut down and consumed as a living sacrifice to partake of the tree of life who is Christ. Genesis 10 The table of nations points us to the desire of nations and it identifies who and where we are in relation to the promise and the curse. In relation to the blessing and the curse. So this morning, your life is proving the glory of God's righteousness and it is demonstrating the wonders of his love. You do not have to worry about that you, you don't have to try for that. It is doing that. The question is whether your life is going to prove it like Ham or whether it's going to prove it like Shem. Whether your, your life will demonstrate the glory of God's righteousness and the wonder of God's love. Will it demonstrate it like Ham or will it demonstrate it like Shem? Will you be the cautionary extra Will you be the cautionary tale, the expendable extra? Or will your life demonstrate it in Christ Jesus? In blessing, we are all enemies of God apart from Christ. Your life will be the story of Jesus Christ defeating his enemy. When I talk about our story, we're not the heroes of our story. You know that. We're not the heroes of our story. Jesus is the hero of his story and he's the hero of our story. And in the story, you have the protagonist and the antagonist. Jesus is the protagonist. We are the antagonist. We're the bad guys. He's the good guy. We're the bad guys. Your story, my story, everybody's story will be the story of how Jesus kills the bad guy. The question is, will you be an enemy who is cast out Or will you be an enemy who is brought in? Will you be an enemy who God destroys and casts out? Or will you be an enemy who God destroys and brings you into his kingdom of light and life? That's the question. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to kill the dragon and to get the girl. We thank you that you have accomplished this and that you are accomplishing it. God, we look to the state of our world today and the conflict between man and man and nation against nation and it's easy to despair and lose sight of the one who is ruling the world. You are the desire of nations, God. Would you show yourself to be the desire of every heart in this room today. 
for your glory in Christ Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. (coughs) The charge is this. God rules the world and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. God is redeeming the nations and he does this in and through our story, a story that you are a part of and a story that you have a role in. Christ has commissioned you, Christian, by his everlasting authority to go to the nations, to disciple to baptize, to teach, to bring them into the community of faith that they may worship the God who is worthy of their worship, who is worthy of all honor and glory. So live out the mission. Live out the mission. Christ in all of life for all the world. Live out the mission. Amen? Please stand and receive a blessing as you go. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Amen. Go in peace.